Alexis Shepherd writes, there were tears about how much I hated it. Emotionally, I was a wreck. It started during teacher training. My cohort were inundated with anecdotes about the hardships of the teacher life. In order to be a good teacher, you would need to work as much as possible. Your students, they're what really matters. And so in my first year, I worked nonstop. I stayed in my classroom until 6 p.m., only to arrive home and continue working. And that year and the next two were the same, work, 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 more work. I exerted maximum effort because great teachers don't care how they feel. They only care about their students. And it took me halfway through the sixth year to realize just how misguided that paradigm was. But then, enter self-care. For then I began to pour into myself. I mean, really dump into myself. Self-care has been an incredible lesson on the importance of attending to my own well-being for the sake of my own success. Today, I plan to treat myself to a manicure. I'll watch my favorite TV show and journal, maybe even at the end of my day, I'll meditate. For I deserve the happiness and the fulfillment that comes from investing in me. I can only pour into others when my own cup is filled. I was working myself into the ground. I was working myself into the ground. Don't. Well, I can reveal that Alexis Shepard, the writer of that article, uh, didn't. Uh, Alexis did not work herself into the ground. Uh, she's live today. Uh, for at some point in the last uh, few years, she quit working as a teacher altogether to become a self-help coach and a health podcaster. And I don't say that with any malice or any judgment, for in my early 20s, I too was a middle school teacher, and it was really hard work. And though I loved it, I too obviously ended up doing something else. And I'm thankful for the few years that Alexis invested to teach uh, the next generation the truth. In fact, if you're a teacher here this morning, whether that be a, a homeschool teaching mom, or whether you're a high school teacher, or whether you're a history professor, please know how much your labors are really appreciated. Your work is key for a well-functioning society. And moreover, some of Alexis's counsel is good, isn't it? For whether we work in teaching or not, rest is good. We should go to the gym and enjoy a show. We should journal. God has made us physical, creative creatures. And to find our identity solely in our professions, as past generations perhaps have done, that, that is neither wise nor helpful. However, however, there is something rather sad about Alexis's attitude, which I think permeates much of a modern America. And if I'm honest, sometimes my own heart too. For there is an attitude out there today which puts personal satisfaction over public service and which will not pour into other people if pain is a prerequisite. An attitude that is summarized by Alexis' article title, I was working myself into the ground, don't. Oh, brothers and sisters, what about you? 
Are you investing in your students and who are they? Can you only pour into other people when your own cup is filled up? Would you or do you scoff at the idea of working yourself into the ground for others? You see, as I started to dig into this passage, the verse that struck me most was the very last one. For here we find Paul's kind of climactic imperative for the whole chapter, maybe even the whole letter. For the Apostle Paul, as he writes this first century church in Corinth, has been building our excitement for the eternal. Chapter 15 has just been building and building like a piece of music, like, like Handel's Messiah, which was inspired by it. And the imagery builds and builds towards the end and the, and the kind of the strings and the woodwind and the, and the brass and the percussion all come together to, to make spine-tingling sentences. But the crescendo to it all is the command to do what? Well, after all these stirring images of our future glory, we, we may imagine, we, we may imagine that, the, the, that Paul's final note might be, therefore my beloved brothers, rejoice, or, or revel, or, or maybe relax. Christ has done it all. Now go and treat yourself to a manicure and then a meditation on the fact that you will leave this world behind. But he doesn't, does he? The, the, the final movement of, of 1 Corinthians 15 that we've been listening to for, for three whole weeks now ends with the sound of an alarm clock. Not because it's just all a dream, but rather because now it is time to get up and get to work. Indeed, in verse 58, Paul tells these Christians to, to basically work themselves into the ground. For verse 58, have a look with me there. Therefore, therefore, in light of all this, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Essentially, work, 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 and more work. Be steadfast. That, that means be fixed in purpose, be a kind of one vocation person, be immovable, i.e. stick with that same old job, always abound in the work of the Lord, be excessive in your exertions and do it daily. And know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Work yourself into the ground, doing the Lord's work. And what is the Lord's work? Well, as we see through uh, the, the work of the Lord Jesus and his commission to, to his people in the Gospels and through Paul's own constant example here, it is the hard work of teaching. Uh, obviously not the hard work of teaching uh, elementary school gym or high school geometry or college-level geopolitics, as helpful as those subjects are as we live on earth. But rather the hard work of all teaching the gospel, the good news that all may live in heaven. If they hold on to that teaching that Jesus died for our sins, verse 3, that Jesus raised from the dead, verse 4, and that, as we've seen throughout this chapter, that, that is what Paul has been laboring hard in as he writes. In the day, Paul was dealing with beasts, if you remember verse 32, as he preached the gospel to the Turkish city of Ephesus. 
And at night, Paul wearily picks up his pen to write to his silly students in the Greek city of Corinth who struggled to grasp the gospel basics and who sarcastically ask questions like the one in verse 35, like high school kids, so then teacher Paul, how are the dead raised? With what kind of bodies will they come? And so friends, as we begin this morning, that is what I want us to see from the very outset, that verse 58 is not some kind of tagged on, optional extra, that the verse 58 is not just a, a final command for just a few of us, for the missionary or for the pastor teacher or for the deacon or the elder or the, or the paid staff member or for those who have time or for those who are particularly enthusiastic about it. If you treasure verses 1 to 57, then that therefore of verse 58 is for you just as it was for the church members in Corinth. If you are wonderfully being called home by the Lord, you are therefore called to pour into others so that they can come home too. You are called to labor in the Lord and to do so always and aboundingly with whatever gifts and whatever capacity that the Lord has given you. You are called to steadfastly teach loved ones, that is your toddlers and your teenagers and your Sunday school class and your small group and your fellow church members are all around you now and your neighbors, the glorious news of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, to fight, to fight again that, that, that modern mindset which sometimes creeps into church, which puts personal satisfaction over public service and will not pour into other people if pain is a prerequisite. To invest in others in spite of tears, emotional wreckage, late nights in the classroom, because you know that your student's final destination does actually matter more than your feelings and your desires. If we are Christians, we are called to work our bodies into the ground because we know that nobody's body will stay in the ground. And the other 23 verses that precede verse 58 are the motivation for that hard work. They're the motivation for both the teacher and the student to keep going in the gospel, to keep believing in the victory of Christ, to keep teaching the good news of Christ. If we are Christians, again, we are called to work our bodies into the ground because gloriously our bodies will not stay in the ground. Indeed, not only will they not stay in the ground, but as Paul wonderfully explains here, when Christ returns to make the world new, our raised bodies will be superior, and those bodies will be certain, and those bodies are coming soon. And so again, as we listen to what the raised Christian body is like this morning, as we think about it, as we feel all those kind of spine-tingling uh, uh, musical notes of these verses, as we hopefully get excited about it personally, rightly dreaming about our own heavenly rest, let us frame it all in that overarching principle, that corporate action to work ourselves into the ground for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of others that the Lord has given us, to pour out our own bodies for all, for all will be poured into everlasting bodies. 
accordingly. Let's get into it. Point one this morning. You can work yourself into the ground because the raised body is superior. You can work yourself into the ground because the raised body is superior. In verses 36 to 44, Paul begins by answering the Corinthians' sarcastic question of verse 35, with what kind of bodies will we come? And he does so using two illustrations which highlight God's power to ensure that we will attain superior bodies when we die. Let's read from verse 36. You foolish person, says Paul, he says in answer to these these sarcastic schoolboy questions, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is, but to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. Paul, with an appropriately summer illustration, uh, starts by, by kind of walking us through the, the, the wheat fields, a bare kernel of wheat sown after death, and the, and the stalk of the wheat which rises from the ground. In, in short, Paul says, because of death, one living thing can have two modes of existence. There is the wheat seed sown into the ground at wintry death, and there is the wheat stalk which bursts forth from the ground in the summer of eternity. And they're they're radically different in superiority. The the, the, the kernel is just a stony seed. It's the kind of the bit of your your, bottom of your your popcorn bowl, something kind of vacuumed up if it's left on the kitchen floor. Whilst the wheat sheaves, well, they're painted and they're photographed and they're sung about as people imagine them blowing in the glory of summer. And so the wheat, which, which represents a person, actually has, has two radical modes of existence. Right now, that the Christian's body is in kind of kernel mode. Everyone here is, is waiting to be sown into the ground, but one day shall attain that, that, that stalk of glory. And yet, did you notice that, that there is a similarity, isn't there, between the seed and the stalk? For the wheat seen, seed sown, well, that doesn't become a weed, it doesn't give rise to a weed that the wheat seed sown does not give rise to a walrus or a waffle maker. For verse 38, to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. And so our body sown when we die shall be gloriously superior and yet in some sense is gloriously similar. So whether Jonathan Worsley is, is sown into the ground in, in, in Woodlawn Cemetery in, in Nashville or Westminster Abbey in London, in Christ I shall rise as Jonathan Worsley. We, we won't be weeds or, or walruses or waffle makers. No, because Jesus was, was resurrected as Jesus, we shall be resurrected as ourselves. In the new creation, we'll be similar. Matt McCullough will be Matt McCullough. And Casey Harvey will be Casey Harvey, and Eric Patton will be Eric Patton. Now, how that works, I'm not exactly sure. I might ponder in eternity, will I get my hair back? Some of you may ask, will will I look like me when I'm not wearing glasses? My eyesight will be perfect. Will people recognize me? And they can see me running and dancing as I did in the glory of my youth. Well, friends, the Bible doesn't tell us that. And so I don't have the answers to those specific questions. 
But two encouraging application points here to just meditate on for a second. Firstly, that the similarity means that we can be assured that we will recognize all our friends who have already gone to glory. For when Christ returns, the, the trumpet will sound and all his church will rise together. That the new heavens and the new earth will, will not be like the, the, the first day of school. It will be like the perfect high school reunion. And so, you friend, you may picture that loved one who trusted in Jesus in the new creation. For you will see them as they were again. You may picture that student who you taught the gospel who was seemingly sown into the ground too soon, you'll recognize them, and they'll recognize you. What a glorious reason to keep working hard, to keep teaching people the gospel. What, what, a, what a glorious reason to work yourself into the ground. Secondly, though, this similarity, I think, means that we, we don't have to live with regret now. You know, one of the saddest pop songs that ever got to number one in the US charts was the 1988 song by Mike and the Mechanics uh, called The Living Years. It was a song all about a father and son who didn't get along. Uh, and the final verse of the pop song goes like this. I wasn't there that morning when my father passed away. I didn't get to tell him all the things I had to say. So say it loud and say it clear. You can listen as well as you hear. Because it's too late, it's too late when we die to admit that we don't see eye to eye. But wonderfully for the Christians, that's just not true. It's not too late when we die. For, for in being able to recognize one another, when we are raised sinless in, in Christ, we shall run to one another and we shall be perfectly reconciled to one another. Well, what a precious gift to know that particularly when we sometimes don't see eye to eye with other Christians here on earth. And again, what a spur to work hard in gospel ministry. Not, not to be ensuring that, the, that we are considered perfect, that we've done everything right in everyone's eyes this side of heaven, but to work hard in gospel ministry to ensure that everyone that we have opportunity to disciple will get there. What a glorious reason to work yourself into the ground for the gospel. And yet the further on we, we go, we see that Paul stresses not a body similarity, but, but, but also body superiority. From verse 39 onwards, Paul moves from comparing the, the, the wheat seed and the wheat stalk to the, to the heavenly body and the, the earthly body. We get not a kind of an agricultural illustration, but, but an astrological illustration. Verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly body is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and there is another glory of the moon. Now, the moon is pretty cool, isn't it? If you wake up early tomorrow, just before 5 a.m., you should be able to see a perfectly full moon, looking at its absolute finest against the backdrop of the dawn. But in all honesty, the moon has nothing on the sun, does it? Now, ultimately, the moon is just a kind of large lump of gray rock in the sky. People have visited it, so you could walk around it in 40 weeks. But the sun, the sun is a blindingly beautiful star that, that has given life to every person, every creature that has ever lived that would take 500 years to walk around. Now, from where we stand today, they may seem similar, that the moon may even be able to block the, the glory of the sun at times. 
But in reality, the splendor that God has given the moon it is nothing on the splendor that God has given the sun. And verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Our heavenly body, like the sun, will be much more glorious than our earthly one. And how is it superior? Well, in verse 42 onwards, Paul makes four comparisons here. Firstly, he says, at verse 42, what is sown perishable versus what is raised imperishable. On the 9th of September, if you head west and to Anaheim, California, you may still be able to get tickets to Radfest, which is not, believe it or not, a... Uh, 1990s uh, rock festival, uh, but is uh, the so-called Woodstock of radical life extension, where scientists and futurists will present their latest findings in, in nanotechnology and DNA engineering and cryogenic preservation. And there, if you were at last year's opening, you'll hear words from James Stroll, the festival director. It will stir up a predominantly gray-haired crowd with the rousing words, we are immortalists. We are into immortality. If you want to live an indefinite life span, to live forever, welcome. And you know, most people are programmed to think death is inevitable, but we want to change that paradigm. For we see aging as a disease, a disease which is curable, and we are at war with death. Well, if it were not so tragic, I'd have watched more highlights from Radfest 2022. For James Stoll sadly epitomizes Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has set eternity in our hearts. You see, whether we are open and honest enough to admit it, that there is a little bit of James in all of us. We may not go to Anaheim and Radfest this September time. We may not be as irrationally optimistic as James, but we all long for immortality. We are all at war with death. Oh, of course, we don't want this life to go on and on and on. That would be more of a hell than a heaven. But we all do long for eternal life and a world where people don't perish all the time, where lungs and hearts don't give out. And the problem is that for most people, despite seeking often, is that they don't know where to look. Because for a body that does not perish, people like that, that, like that sad, gray-haired crowd in, in Anaheim must look to the historians and not to the futurists. They must look away from the hope of AD 2023 and to the hope of AD 33. For in the city of Jerusalem, there was one who was sown to the ground in fragile human flesh and who was raised imperishable for all to see. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and not by any DNA re-engineering or cryogenic freezing or any microscopic robots coursing through his veins, but by simply trusting his heavenly father. And friends, that is the cure. That is the cure that he offers perishable people and all who are at war with death with tears in their eyes. For in his own very famous words, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not have a perishable body, 
but shall have eternal life. Now, now friends, if you are here and you're not a Christian, I do very much realize that that, that that may sound to you like I am as crazy as James Stoll. But this is not my promise. This is the promise of the most loving and trustworthy man in history, the only man who came back to life. And for $300, less than, sorry, $300, than a plane ticket to Anaheim this summer, you can take home the eyewitness accounts that you hold in your hand for free. You can make the most of your summer, working hard to seriously investigate why we die, where we are going, who is this Jesus, and what did he do? What a glorious reason to work yourself into the ground, looking carefully at the claims of the gospel. For the one who trusts Jesus shall not perish, that they have a body which is sown imperishable, but it will be raised imperishable. And not only that, but verse 43, look on. Our body sown in dishonor, which will be raised in glory, ensure that the Christian's new body will be sanctified. Christian, I hope you know that. That in your new bodies, wonderfully, you will not be able to sin. It won't be a fight to tame your bitter heart when you, when you doubt God's goodness. And it won't be a fight to tame your jealous mind when, when your new neighbor gets the new car or your wild lust at the computer screen, your gossiping tongue at the office. Dishonorable acts done in a body that, that so often brings us shame will be gone. Our bodies shall rise as, as glorious, sanctified bodies but the dishonorable deeds done in them, they shall not come with us. They shall lie on the ground forever, never come out. For those sown in dishonor, unfit for his kingdom, we are raised in the royal robes of Christ's righteousness. Again, what a glorious reason to work yourself into the ground for the sake of the gospel. And so we shall be similar. And yet our bodies shall not perish. Indeed, they'll be sanctified. And not only that, but they shall be strong. Third comparison, more encouragement, end of verse 43, sown in weakness, raised in power. Friends, as I look around this room, I, I know you well enough, and I know myself well enough, to know that there is much bodily weakness in this room. And in a sense, I kind of rejoice in it. I rejoice in our diversity across age and health, and that we just get to see normal life at Edgefield Church, that we're not a church of, of 25-year-old gym models, that our website is not full of, of photoshopped people that try to give the impression that Christians are all strong and beautiful. No. I know this room is filled with many weak bodies, normal, broken bodies that know the weariness of them, bodies weary of dementia and diabetes and depression bodies weary of, of panic attacks and the pain of pregnancy and of Crohn's disease and even cancer. And I know that in this room is filled with many bodies that will be strong. Not, not here on earth, although we ought to pray for those who are feeling weak. God is certainly able to temporarily make us strong, but bodies that will soon be strong forever. 
because there are many in this room who, in spite of weakness, in spite of the fact, in, in spite of the fact that, that they have endured decades of weakness, that they do not lash out at God for giving them, for not giving them a better body, but cling to His promises for a new one. Our oh, friends, how precious! are these promises that guarantee our future. How glorious a hope for those who keep trusting in the good news of Christ, risen to a strong body. What a glorious reason to work yourself into the ground for the gospel of telling other people. A few years ago, I vividly remember waiting in a London hospital. And as I was waiting, a pale girl, no more than 22 years old, staggered by me. She had a tube running through her nose, and she held her IV like a crutch, and with the other hand, she wiped a tear from her eye. And the scene of one so young, and yet so weak, really took me aback. In fact, it took me aback so much that, that she'd staggered on before I could, I could say anything, before I could even open my mouth. But, but everything within me wanted to tell her of Jesus. Not Jesus, the one who helps the sick, but Jesus, the one who raises the saved. And of Jesus' power over death, which means that those who trust in him, in bodies of temporary weakness, may receive ones of eternal strength if we trust in him. Friends, what hope we have to share with the weak and the frail at the hospital the rehab clinic. Friends, are are we working our bodies into the ground so that we may share with whoever the Lord has given us bodies that shall not perish, bodies that shall be sanctified, bodies that shall be strong, and verse 44 of bodies that shall be supernatural. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. Now, when Paul says spiritual body here, he doesn't mean a body that gets the Holy Spirit. Because if we're Christians, we have him living inside of us already. And nor does he mean that we won't get a material body that will kind of float around like, like, like moaning Merkel from Harry Potter or perhaps better, uh, nearly headless Nick. Uh, rather, the spiritual body here means that the, the, the opposite to the earthly body. It is a body literally made for heaven, of heaven, Which is obvious because if our environment will be superior, then our bodies must fit in with it and be superior. And so what does this mean practically? How should that instill a desire to to work hard, pouring ourselves out for others? Well, again, the motivation to teach the gospel is not that we get to marvel at the thought of a body that would fit in well with with, with a world of Marvel comics. No, it's not worth our time trying to imagine a kind of spiritual body, which the Bible tells us very little about. But it is worth remembering, isn't it, that this natural body is one that we shall shed soon. And so 70-somethings here don't need to become stressed about their bodies when when they look in the mirror and they see the elderly person staring back. And 40 somethings here don't need to become depressed about their bodies when they no longer see the the, the size and the shape that they once were. And teenagers here don't need to become obsessed about their bodies, if they're young and stunning, or if they're just not. 
And because the natural body is on the way out, the Christian is gloriously freed. Freed up from spending all their time and, and money and effort on the best foods and, and, and health care and gym membership and skin care products. All to make themselves a tiny little bit prettier for a few fleeting years. And instead, the Christian is gloriously freed up to spend their time and their money and their effort on making themselves and others that they know ready to receive the body that will be fit for heaven. And so that was point one. Work yourself into the ground because the raised body is superior. And I've used most of our time on that. But for completion, there are two smaller points, two additional points that I want us to draw out more quickly. And secondly, restating last week's big idea, I want to remind us again, as Paul does, that this raised body is certain. Because that would be good to know, wouldn't it? That would be really nice to know. If we're to work our old bodies into the ground so that we may receive through faith a new body, we don't want just a few good words said about it. We want the guarantee of it. And gloriously, the raised body is guaranteed. Indeed, that's point two this morning. You can work yourself into the ground because the raised body is certain. The raised body is certain. All the promises that you just heard, they are not the promises of a second-hand car salesman. Some of you may think that, but they are not. Because as Paul keeps highlighting in this chapter, Jesus was raised. And through faith, we are in him. Jesus was raised, and now we are in his family. Jesus was raised, and we are now his sons and daughters. Before we trusted in Jesus, as we thought about last week, we were in the first man's family. We were in Adam's family. And being in Adam's family, well, it was a bit like being in the Adam's family. Or just like the theme tune, if we're honest. We're creepy and we're kooky. We're altogether ooky. Indeed, because Adam was the first rotten first fruit. Verse 21, as we discovered last week, we as his sons and daughters are destined to rot in the ground like him. And Paul picks up this theme again in verses 45 to 50. And he says that the earthly Adam just lived. The earthly Adam lived a natural earthly life and then died a natural earthly death. And Adam then went back into the earth. Verse 47. And so accordingly, as the coffin is lowered into the ground, we hear the words at the graveside, from ashes to ashes, from dust to dust. Because verse 48, as was the first man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. Everyone in this room will die and become dust. But... But verse 48 continues, in the same way that the first man, Adam, was of dust, and so all in him are of dust, so the second man, Christ, the made of life-giving spirit of heaven, and so also are those who are of heaven. Verse 49 just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we shall bear also the image of the man of heaven. 
Can you see what Paul is saying here, using this, this bearing, that the kind of family image metaphor? Those who are in Adam, who have borne his image from cute baby face to skinless skull in the ground, all in Adam die as his sons, bearing his image in death. But those who are in Christ will also bear his image from having the Holy Spirit to having spiritual bodies all in Christ will rise as his sons, bearing his image in resurrection. And as sons who are seen in his likeness, we will inherit the kingdom of God. That's verse 50. For only a son or daughter gets the family inheritance. Accordingly, verse 50 again, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. If you ignore Christ... If you image Adam in life and death, there is no hope at all for you this morning. No hope. Your outer garments of of morality, they may fool some people here. You may wear a wig of justice or the the, the Be Kind t-shirt, and your religious makeup may be thick with piety. But you must be born again. Born as sons of Christ, the spiritual man, if you are to inherit the very kingdom of the Father. For gloriously, when you do, when you accept Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, you are guaranteed the kingdom of heaven and that heavenly body that comes with it. Because Christ is in heaven now and has a heavenly body too, just as all the hundreds of eyewitnesses like Paul saw. And we who already have this happy certainty, for for those of us in Christ... We can pour ourselves, can't we, into others with this gospel truth. We can actually sacrifice our well-being for the sake of, of whichever students the Lord has given us. We can work ourselves into the ground because the raised body is certain. The raised body is certain. Finally, final point today. When will this body come? When will it come? For again, it's, again, it's, it's all very well, isn't it, to consider working really hard if we know that the product to come is good, and even if the product to come is guaranteed. But what if the product never actually arrives? Well, maybe we should think twice about working hard. Which brings us to point three. Work yourself into the ground because the raised body is superior, the raised body is certain, and finally because the raised body is coming soon. The raised body is coming soon. Verse 51, behold, says Paul, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. One day very soon, says Paul, the risen Lord Jesus will come to judge will come to judge the living and the dead, and he will hand out heavenly spiritual bodies to those who have held on by his spirit, who have been made fit for heaven by his grace. Now, we may waste many an hour thinking that we know when that is, concluding that surely, surely he must come before 2050, concluding that surely he could not possibly come before I go to bed this evening. But as Jesus himself said, Matthew 24, 36, concerning that day and that hour, nobody knows. Nobody knows. But what we do know is that he may come at any moment and that he will come suddenly and that we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. 
in, in a moment unable to be captured by any stopwatch. There will be no painful and, and, and slow metamorphosis, like a butterfly slowly sliding through its chrysalis. No. Uh, the very first note of the very final trumpet, the Christian dead will burst through the ground and Christians alive at the time will meet Christ in the air. And then, like a boxer standing victorious over his opponent, Jesus will trash talk death himself, laughing in his face with the words of Hosea 13, verse 55, Oh death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? If we're in Christ, in a glorious nanosecond, we shall be changed into immortal glory like him. But in that nanosecond, obviously it will be too late for some. For can you see that this trumpet sound will, will not be like the tornado warning? It will sound just as frightening uh, for those in Adam but it will not give enough time to find shelter or to pack up or even say a prayer. When the trumpet sounds, it shall be instantaneous. It will be too late to, to utter another word. It will be too late to take another step. Like Lot's wife who, who changed into, a, into a, a body of salt instantly as God's judgment came. So everybody will instantly be changed as they are made fit for eternity with or without God. And again, friends, verse 58. This is why we are called to be steadfast, to be immovable. This is why we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's why we can, in love for other people, pour ourselves out for others, why we can work ourselves into the ground as we seek to teach this eternal truth to, to our families, our families who, who may laugh at the idea of, of a resurrection, thinking that everyone in this world just, just kind of comes from nothing and goes to nothing. As we seek to teach this eternal truth to our friends, who may scold us actually, who may scold us for sounding the trumpet, for frightening fleeting people, who are just partying while they can. One of the greatest examples in history for me of always abounding in the work of the Lord was the Puritan minister called Richard Baxter. Uh, Baxter was a pastor who lived in England uh, in the 1600s. And he spent every single day after his 21st birthday, every single day just after he would have completed his teacher training in chronic pain, in prolonged bouts of illness, fearing most days that that would be his last. And yet, amazingly, Baxter did not quit teaching. Indeed, for decades, he labored tirelessly in the gospel. He did so in a, a little town called Kidderminster, which, according to historians, was a small town full of corrupt and crude handloom workers. And there in Kidderminster, he taught Jesus' bodily resurrection, which angered many people there. And he was careful about who came to the Lord's table, and that upset many people there. 
And he went from home to home, all around the town, pleading that they might trust in a Jesus who had swallowed up death. And Baxter's motivation for all this gospel labor was what? Well, in his book, The Saints Everlasting Rest, I think we get a bit of a clue about what caused him to keep teaching that the students, that the people in his town, that the Lord had given him. For he writes this, and with this we shall close. If we have some few comforts here on earth, they are hardly enough to sweeten our crosses. If we have some short and smiling intermissions, they offer scarcely time enough to catch our breath, and prepare our rigging for the next storm. If one wave passes, another follows. If the night is over, the day arrives. It'll soon be night again. But oh, oh, the blessed tranquility of that heavenly region where there is nothing but sweet, continued peace. Oh, healthful place where none are sick. Oh, fortunate land where all are kings. Oh, that most holy place where all are priests, for it will come to pass on that day of the Lord when he will give us rest from our sorrow, our fear, and the hard bondage in which we have served. So hold out a little longer, O oh my soul, and bear with the infirmities of your earthly tabernacle and work hard, for soon in your raised body you will rest from all affliction. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are a wonderful, what a wonderful hope we have. What glorious bodies we have to come. Bodies that are superior in every way. Bodies where we'll be able to recognize one another, and yet bodies that shall not perish, bodies that shall be raised new, bodies that will be sanctified, bodies where we won't sin anymore, bodies where we'll be strong, raised spiritual, like the spiritual man, Christ, your dear son. And so the Father being in him, being a son, Father, we thank you for the great certainty of being raised. We thank you that that will happen very soon. And so in light of it all, in these fleeting years that you have given us, perhaps in these fleeting days before your son comes back home, help us to work hard, to labor in the Lord as we bear with the infirmities of our earthly tabernacle. Help us to pour into other people here with this glorious hope and help us to do it all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.